it used to be that when an athlete retired, he retired once. <laughs> but in our day and age, it, it seems that they retire and then they change their mind and then they retire and then they change their mind. And, but it used to be in the old days. You remember how it was. In the old days when they retired, they retired. And, uh, you know, we, we've seen over the years some, um, some classic farewell speeches. We've seen some classic um, farewell lines. Um, sometimes uh, bands play and have a lot of success and decide after X amount of years that that's it and they'll do a farewell tour. Um, everyone has a farewell. And sometimes you don't get an opportunity to make a speech when you're living. I remember Howard Hendricks saying that one of, his, uh, one of his favorite things to do in his travels uh, was to visit different uh, old cemeteries and read, uh, read the epitaphs. I remember uh, uh, last July, Mary and I were in New York. We went up there for our 25th anniversary. And uh, there was a church, Trinity Church, right up from Wall Street that literally is in the shadow of the World Trade Center. And uh, George Washington attended church there, and they have, a, they have a, a, a cemetery right next door, graveyard. I mean, graves from, you know, 1700s. Um, you know, sometimes people think in advance what they're going to have put on their tombstones. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? And Hendricks, Hendricks tells about seeing this one tombstone, best one he ever saw. It just simply said, I told you I was sick. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's hard to beat. Joshua knew that death was uh, coming close in Joshua 23. And uh, we're going to get his farewell address to the people of Israel. Um, he, he's a central figure. I, I, was, uh, I was driving around today and uh, I was listening to, I, I turned on uh, ESPN and just caught it for about three minutes. And one of the guys on there was saying about the Celtics. And uh, that the Celtics have retired more team jerseys than, than any other team probably in history. If you go to the Fleet Center, it used to be Boston Garden. But they probably have got 20 jerseys up there. And the guy who was a sports writer in Boston said, but of the 20, there they're really, they're really are the four. There are four guys. And I thought to myself, Koozie, uh, Russell, Havlicek, and Bird. And the guy said, Kuzi, Russell, Avlicek, and Bird. I didn't win anything, but at least I, you know. <laughs> quite frankly, that's a no-brainer, you know. That's a no-brainer. Um, that, um, and, and you know, when, when you take this section, we, we've been in Joshua, and um, Joshua starts with them um, Joshua kind of picks it up because they had a 40-year interruption. And when you take that period of history from the exodus out of Egypt 
into the promised land, you've got three key men. You've got Moses, you've got Joshua, and you've got Caleb. We looked at Caleb last week, and tonight we're going to get Joshua's uh, farewell address. And you know, we're all going to have the farewell address. We're all going to have um, something they're going to remember us by. Um, one of my heroes is uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great um, Welsh preacher who died in 1981. Uh, he succeeded G. Campbell Morgan at Westminster Chapel uh, in London. But uh, he, he felt that the way that a man died was very important. The way that a man handled himself facing death spoke volumes. He felt that was the kind of the, the final test, and quite frankly, the final testimony. And uh, in his own case, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who had uh, preached for years and years and years, uh, and had kept a full schedule, and uh, he had retired from, from uh, Westminster Chapel, but uh, had continued to, to uh, speak and carry on a full schedule. And he was looking ahead in his... Um, in his uh, uh, daytimer, in his calendar book, and he'd always, his schedule had always been booked about a year, year and a half out. And uh, he looked at it and realized that he only had, he had six months of meetings and then there was nothing booked. And it hadn't been that way since he was 30 years old. And, and Lloyd-Jones, being the um, kind of man that he was and the um, somewhat stoic and very rational man. He looked at that and he surmised from that, I think I'm going to die. I mean, it just made sense to him. Uh, he'd never seen that before. And the only thing he could imagine is that God in his sovereignty, it didn't make sense to him that God would have him book meetings that he couldn't make. And he was right. Uh, Right after that, he got ill and got cancer and started fighting cancer and uh, fought it for a while, but eventually it took its toll. And it got to a point where the doctors uh, told his wife to call in the family. And so his uh, daughters came with their husbands and grandchildren and all that, and they gather uh, around uh, his bed. And he couldn't speak. Uh, he was so weak, but he managed to scratch out a note. And uh, he scratched out the note, handed it to his wife, and the note said, do not pray for my healing. Don't hold me back from the glory. Now that speaks volumes about what a man believes when he knows that death is imminent. Uh, he didn't want to be healed. He wanted to go. He was ready. He was uh, expectant. Uh, he was prepared. Uh, we'll all face that. So, sometimes we don't know when death is coming, but other times you're in a situation and uh, the indicators are that it's around the corner and it's coming close. In Joshua 23, that's where Joshua is. Um, Now it came about after many days when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, 
that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years. As though they couldn't figure that out. You know? But he wanted them to know. He was just stating the obvious. Um, you know, it's interesting because right, right in this opening verse, it says, after many days. Uh, that seems to indicate uh, something that is not, not clearly delineated time-wise, but what it suggests is that there was a lengthy interval of years between the conquest of the land and the occasion of this gathering. Uh, if Joshua and Caleb are roughly the same age, this was probably, we looked at Caleb last week in, what was it, Joshua 14, um, when Caleb was 85. This is probably 20 years, maybe 25 years later. Joshua died at 110. So after many days, after the conquest, and the land had been divided up, and they were living on the land, um, that's when he called all the heads together from their apportioned areas of, uh, of real estate and brings them together. Um, the Lord had given these people rest from all their enemies. You know, as we've studied Joshua, uh, every time we studied Joshua, they were fighting somebody. Every time they were, they were, uh, we were in a new chapter, they had somebody else to take on. They had another city. They had another group against them. They had a coalition. But here now, uh, it makes it very, very clear that the Lord had given them rest. Uh, the conquest was over, and Joshua was old. Um, and here's basically what's going what's gonna to shake out in chapter 23. Uh, if you've been uh, here on Sundays with, with uh, Chuck as he's going through Job, uh, he, a couple weeks ago he broke down the book of Job and basically said Job had three friends and what would happen in Job is that one of the friends would address him, then Job would address the guy then the second friend would address him, he'd address the guy in return, then the third guy would address him, and then, he'd, and then he said, that's round one. And you got three rounds. Well, what you've got in Joshua 23 is very simple. You have two ideas stated three times in Joshua 23. Let me give the two ideas to you. <clears throat> the first thing that Joshua, he, he's going to say the same thing just in three different angles. First thing that he is going to say to all the heads of Israel is this. God has been faithful to Israel. That's number one. Here's number two. Israel, you be faithful to God. Now we're going to see this in three sections in this chapter. Um, You know, final words are important words. He thought about this long and hard. Uh, repetition is the mother of learning, and I think Joshua, because he knew the hearts of these people, had a concern about what would happen after he died, and he warns them. Now, let's look first of all at verses 3 through 8, and, and see if you don't see this theme running through this text. Uh, it says, and you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God, it is he who has been fighting for you. Uh, 
Now, you see how he's speaking of the faithfulness of God? Then he says in verse 4, See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan even to the great sea towards the setting of the sun. He's talking about the Mediterranean as the great sea. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you and drive them out before you, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. So in 3, 4, and 5, he starts off by talking about God has been faithful, and God will continue to be faithful. At this point, here's what had happened. God had given them victory over 31 fortified cities. Now, we know about Jericho. We know about Ai. But what you, when you add them all up, they took on 31 different fortified, strong, uh, siege-proof, um, militarily superior cities, and they took every single one of them. They took them in different ways, but God gave them victory. As a result, each tribe, uh, each of the, of the tribes now had extensive land holdings which uh, almost all of them included modern cities and abundant agricultural uh, terrain. Uh, so, so what does that add up to? You've got extensive real estate holdings. You've got, uh, you've got cities that someone else built. And if you remember early on, if you go back to Deuteronomy 6, when Moses was talking to the children of Israel, he said to them, God said to them, I'm going to give you cities you didn't build. I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. We've talked about that before. I'm going to give you water systems that are, you know, this was a big deal to have a cistern that someone um, chiseled out of granite that's now two, three hundred feet deep because water can be scarce in this part of the world. Uh, those guys didn't, they, they, they didn't, chisel their own cisterns. They went and took somebody else's cisterns. They got cities. They got cisterns. They got crops. They got orchards. Um, and now they've got it. Got, they have realized the promise. Uh, well, you know what that all adds up to? Fortified cities, extensive land holdings, orchards, agricultural. You know what that all adds up to? That adds up to prosperity. <clears throat> These guys were wealthy now. And remember when they started, under Moses, they were a bunch of slaves and been slaves for 400 years. So, so they're wealthy, they're prosperous, they're affluent. They have more stuff than they have ever had in their lives. They can't believe it. And also we learn in verse, uh, uh, verses 4 and 5 that there were still some pockets of resistance. It's sort of like Afghanistan. We went in Afghanistan, pretty much handled everything, pretty much destroyed the Taliban, but there are some still pockets of resistance. I mean, the battle's been won. Uh, they've been crushed. Leaders take off. But here and there, you got some guys in some caves. It's like after uh, World War II. <clears throat> For quite a while, you had some guys, some Japanese soldiers, on some isolated islands in the Pacific, and some of those guys were there 5, 10, 12. I think there was one guy, the last guy was there 25 years. Uh, they had pockets, they had pockets of resistance. That's what was going on here. So it, it, the conquest was over, but here and there they had to fight some guys. So what he's telling these guys is God has been faithful. He's blessed you, you're prosperous, and you know what? The remaining work that you've got to do, the guys you've got to ferret out of the caves, God will fight for you. 
Now, he immediately then turns and speaks to them about their responsibility to be faithful to God because of what God has done for them. Uh, verse 6, be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left in order that you may, to, may, not, may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. For you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. Now, let me ask you something. Anything in verse 6 that rings a bell with you? Anything that, uh, maybe you're not sure what I'm after. But, there you go, 1-8, Joshua 1-8. Here's Joshua, over 100 years old. He's probably pushing 110 right now. We don't know how close he is to death, but he's close. And see, the charge he gives to the leaders of Israel is the very charge that was given to him when he was given the leadership. Turn back to Joshua 1, verse 8, please. These are the words that the Lord spoke to him. Look at verse 7. Only be strong and be very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. See, the very charge that was given to him. And can we say this about Joshua Joshua did this. Joshua implemented this. Joshua is one of those guys in the scriptures who finished strong. And the name of the game in the Christian life is to finish strong. That's what we want to do. That's, that's the passion. Um, and you know, as we get older and you get closer to the finish line, and you've been walking with the Lord, you know, you... Uh, and, and, and you've seen some peers, you've seen some contemporaries drop out of the picture. Uh, you see them drop out of the race. Um, and I'd say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 52. And uh, I was talking with a guy today who's a student at the seminary. This is kind of interesting. We were just chatting. And uh, we were talking about some issues. And he said, you know, he said, I'm just a student there. And only been, I'm in my second year. But he said, I, I've noticed kind of a distinction. And I, I said, really, what kind of distinction? He said, well, he said, there's sort of a difference. There's sort of a, a difference between professors. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I think the cutoff is 50. <laughs> the guys who are over 50 are old school. The guys who are under 50, they're a little bit more open. I said, you don't know what you're talking about. No, I, I didn't say that. But, yeah, that was kind of interesting, get put in that old guy camp. You know, that was. And, uh, and wherever I was this weekend, I stopped and, oh, I was getting breakfast somewhere, and the guy, uh, you know, the guy wanted to give me the senior discount. <laughs> that's the second time that's happened to me recently. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just lied to him. Yeah, no, I mean, he, 
kind of funny. I couldn't, actually, I couldn't understand what he was saying at first, and I realized he said senior discount. I said, oh, okay. Anyway, uh, here's my point, which I, I have completely lost here. Um, that's, yeah, that's old school. You lose your point. But you know what? You know what? Joshua never forgot the point. He's pushing 110, and he didn't forget the most important thing. This word of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. Don't turn from the right nor to the left. When we turn from God's word, we're in trouble. He stayed with that. And, and, and see, that's why God gave him success. That's why God favored him. That's why God gave him those victories over 31 fortified cities. I mean, if there's anything that runs through this book, and if there's anything we've learned, is that this guy was obedient to the word of God, and God blesses obedience. We've got this screwy idea somehow about grace. Uh, I, I, I've been getting questions over the last few months um, from college students in this area. Somebody's teaching some stuff around here that's screwy. Um, and, and what I'm referring to is, what I'm referring to is, is this idea that God blesses obedience. I had some college students say to me, well, you know, well, God's going to bless me either way. So say that again. If I'm obedient, God's going to bless me. If I'm disobedient, God's still going to bless me because, see, see, you're talking old covenant. Huh. Give me a break. But let me ask you something. You really believe that you can trample on the grace of God, walk in disobedience, and he's going to bless you? You need to go read this book. I don't know whose tapes you're listening to, but you, read it, you better start reading this Bible. That makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, people, what they do is they cheapen grace that way. That's not how God operates. God honors and God blesses obedience he blesses obedience to his word, and if there's anything that characterizes Joshua's life, here was a guy who finished strong because he kept God's word at the center of his life, and he just wasn't a hearer. He was a doer. He was a doer. He, he didn't back off. Um, see, guys, the enemy, hey, hey, you know what? You may retire but the enemy never does. Retirement, for a lot of guys, uh, you have more leisure time. Leisure time can be unbelievably dangerous because leisure time, if not handled correctly, can lead to a spiritual downfall. That's what happened with David. David took some leisure time. David took some, he, he, he took a sabbatical he had no business taking. The scripture says, at the time when kings go to war, when David should have been out with his guys, leading his guys. Hey, David wasn't 87 years old. David was in the prime, you know? Instead of being out with the guys, leading them what he should have been doing, he's taking time off. He had too much time on his hand, and boom. Uh, you know, it's amazing. The enemy never quits. The enemy never gives up. So you can be walking with Christ for 40 years. You can be married 40 years. You can be married 50 years, and 
you see, you can't rest on your laurels because as we mentioned last week, we're in war and we're in battle and it doesn't end until we go to be with the Lord. So we have to keep our guard up and we have to stay in this book. Here's a guy. There is a, um, there's a process we go through. <clears throat> I've quoted you to you guys from uh, John Flavel and I've quoted uh, Thomas Watson. I don't think I've done this guy, Thomas Brooks, another old Puritan. Uh, uh, his book is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Kind of a cumbersome title. But what he's talking about is warfare. And he's talking about counteroffensives. And um, he's talking about uh, sin and how the enemy seeks to um, uh, lessen and uh, desensitize us the sin of any kind. It's, it's a strategy that he has. And, and here's his remedy to that kind of attack. He says, first, solemnly consider that those sins which we are apt to account as small have brought upon men the greatest wrath of God, as the eating of the fruit, uh, gathering a few sticks on the Sabbath day, and touching the ark relatively small sins that brought great wrath. Oh, the dreadful wrath that these sins brought down upon the heads and hearts of men. And then he gives a second remedy. He says, and then please consider that the giving way to a less sin makes a way for the committing of a greater. Sin is of an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, Tell it half the soul to the very height of sin. I'm going to stop right there for a minute, and I want you to see something back in this text that this relates to. Um, and let's read 6 and 7 again, okay? And see if you don't see a progression going on here, where he's calling them to be responsible to God. Be very firm then to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, in order that you may not associate with these nations, that these, uh, th these which remain among you, now catch this, or mention the name of their gods, or make anyone swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. There's a progression that's there. We'll touch on that in just a minute. Sin is of an encroaching nature. It creeps on the soul by degrees, step by step, till it hath to the soul. It has the soul to the very height of sin. David gives way to his wandering eye, and this led him to those foul sins that caused God to break his bones and to turn his day into night and to leave his soul in great darkness. Jacob and Peter and other saints have found this true by woeful experience, that the yielding to a lesser sin has been the ushering in of a greater. The little thief will open the door and make way for the greater, and the little wedge knocked in will make way for the greater. Satan will first draw you to sit with the drunkard, and then to sip with the drunkard, and at last to be drunk with the drunkard. Kind of an interesting take. But you see what he's saying here? Now, equate this, Joshua is warning them because there are still pockets of the ites in the promised land. They're still here and there. And he realizes that they are 
at great risk of being influenced by these false nations of which there are still pockets. Um, what he's saying to them is, don't associate with the Canaanites. Don't do it. Don't make peace treaties with them. Don't make pacts with them. He gives, um, he gives four, uh, four steps that occurs. And, and let's set the context here. You, you see, when they're fighting and when they're at war, and, and when they're trying to take cities, that's one thing. But you know what? This has been going on a long time, and basically what's happened is, it, is that things have calmed down. They're not fighting every day. They're not going out to war every day. They're not taking on fortified cities. They've been given rest. Life is relatively peaceful. Life is relatively calm. Oh, every once in a while, you'll have a skirmish somewhere. But life is pretty good. Let me tell you what else about life. Life is pretty, life is pretty comfortable. Life is pretty prosperous. These guys aren't worried about going into battle. What they're doing is they're, they're opening up. They're, they're checking their stock portfolio. They're doing day trading. Uh, the economy's good. Uh, they're increasing, you know, their productivity of their orchards and all this kind of stuff. What I'm saying to you guys is this. They're prosperous and they're comfortable and they're affluent. And that's a real dangerous place to be. Because, see, you let down your guard. And, see, when you're prosperous and you're affluent, you're comfortable, and you know what, quite frankly, who wants to fight? So maybe these guys come out, and, you know, one day you just start talking, hey, 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 you know what, this is nuts. We've been doing this for 30 years. Why don't you come on over, hey, you know what, let's just forget it. Let's come over and have dinner tonight. Real subtle. Real subtle. Look, look at the fourfold thing that, that he warns them against, against these, against these ites who had false gods. And see, he knew their hearts, and he knew these people were extremely vulnerable. He says, number one, uh, don't associate with them. Uh, that's, that's the blanket statement. In order that you may not, not associate with them. And then here's the four steps. Number one, don't mention the name of their gods. Here's number two. Don't make anyone swear by them. See, if you don't mention the name, he doesn't even want the name of the, of the, of the, of the God mentioned. And then secondly, because see, once you start mentioning the name of God, then it's pretty easy to go from there to just swear by the name of that God. You wouldn't swear by the name of your God, but you can swear by the name of that false God. And then thirdly, after you then incrementally have done that, you mention the name, you swear by the name, now you serve the God. And then, and then what follows on that is that eventually you'll just go ahead and you'll just, you'll just bow down to the God. Um, he's deeply concerned about this. And if you know your Bible history, he was concerned for good reason. Because this is exactly what happened. Somebody, before we got started, asked a great question. He said, just real quick, can you tell me why the Jews for thousands of years have been the most persecuted people on the face of the earth? They're driven out of nations. He said, we'll have to talk about that. I said, no, I'll tell you why. Deuteronomy 28. There's your answer. We've talked about Deuteronomy 28 a hundred times in here. It's the blessings and it's the curses. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, God said, if you follow me, I'll bless you, bless you. But you, if you go after these other, what? God. And what did they do? My gosh. 
They're going after Baal. They're going after Moloch. They're going after all these false gods. They're killing their kids. They're sacrificing them to the fire gods. They're in sexual orgies. Orgies. They have legitimized homosexuality as part of their worship services. I mean, it's, it's staggering. It is beyond belief where they wound up. That's why. Because they are still experiencing, uh, to a degree, what's happened in Deuteronomy, what, what Deuteronomy 28 said would happen. See, he hit it right. He hit it right. And he warned them. God's been good to you. God has been faithful to you. Now you be faithful to God. And you know, quite frankly, after Joshua died, they lost it. Then you get in the book of Judges, and it's, my gosh, I mean, they just lost it. That's what the book of Judges is all about. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now, did you notice verse 8? He says to them, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You shall cling to the Lord your God. Um, the word cling has different shades of meaning. Let me give you a few. It means to be deeply attracted to. Uh, it means to fasten a grip upon. It means to follow closely. Uh, it means to be joined together. It means to hold, to hold fast. Cling also means to stay, to stay close, to stick, to stick together. If you're a connoisseur of peaches, you know that there is what is called a cling peach. There is also another type of peach called a, a freestone. Freestone. Now, uh, I was recently reading a biography of peaches. No, I'm just kidding. I've read seven biographies of peaches over the years. No. Um, Peaches, by their nature, uh, you know, you're out there in an orchard somewhere and you see one and it's ripe and you just pick it up and, you know, you're going you're gonna to tear that sucker apart. And you probably had the experience of trying to get that pit away from the meat. And it's really hard to do. I mean, if you don't have a pocket knife, you're in trouble. Because that pit wants to cling to the meat. Because it's a clean peach. So they developed a type of peach where that pit, where that stone... It's free. It just comes out real easily. It's a freestone peach. A um, long, long time ago, when I pastored in California, uh, this, uh, this gal came to the Lord, and she was, uh, uh, she'd been divorced and uh, had met a guy, and they'd remarried, and they, they had absolutely no Christian background. I mean, none. They didn't know the first thing about anything. And someone invited them, and they came, and they, anyway, they, they found the Lord. And it, I mean, their lives were radically changed. And um, she came up to me uh, and, and said, Steve, I'd like to be baptized. And I said, well, that's a good thing. And she said, you know what I want to do? She said, I want to be baptized in the Pacific Ocean. I said, okay, well, we can do that. She said, you know what I want to do? She said, can we get a, a, a deal after a Sunday and set a time, and I want to invite my family because they, they think I've kind of lost it. They don't understand this. But I was saying it'd be neat. We're going to have a picnic over at Half Moon Bay, and um, let's work it out. And I said, great, let's do it. And so we did it. And um, 
So we had the picnic and all that, and I had a couple of my kids with me, and you know, anyway. So it's time to go out there. And I used, you know, long, long, long time ago, uh, I, I used to uh, surf at Half Moon Bay. And Half Moon, this is Northern California, and the water tends to be cold. You, you get in the, you, you don't get in the surf without a wetsuit. So I'm thinking, all right, let's get her in, and let's do this quick, because that water's cold. And uh, as we're walking out, and she's just this little wisp of a thing, we're walking out, and uh, uh, we get up to about here, and she starts, and I had, I had cutoffs, and I had a, a t-shirt on, and she starts grabbing on to my arm. I mean, she started kind of freaking, kind of panicking. I mean, she's grabbing this little thing. I mean, she put a grip on my arm, and I just, I said, it's okay. We're, you know, we're just going to go out a little bit further. She said, I, I don't think I can go any further. I said, it's fine. It's no big. She said, you know, I, I'm just, the water's, and she said, I can't swim. And I'm thinking, I mean, it just hit me. I went, you can't swim? And you wanted to be baptized in the Pacific Ocean? And you specifically requested Half Moon Bay? Half Moon Bay is known for its riptide. And I'm thinking, you know what? We better do this quick. And I mean, she literally, she panicked, and she grabbed me and then grabbed my shirt and literally tore the shirt right off. I mean, it just ripped it. My point is she was clean. That's my point. She was not, she was not free stoning. <laughs> she was scared to death. And I want to tell you something. When I realized how scared she was, I just went ahead, and I, I mean in about 30, I, listen, if total immersion is required for entrance into heaven, she's not going to make it. We got, we got most of her in. And then we got her out. Um, I'll never forget, literally ripped the shirt. Right off. Uh, what was she doing? Uh, she was gripping. She was following closely. She was joined together. She was holding. She was holding fast. See, that's what it means. So you cling to the Lord your God. You cling to him and not any other God. Not any other philosophy. Not any other idol. And, and see, and, and the reason he was driving this home is that they were prosperous. And when you're prosperous, and when you're comfortable, and when you're affluent, you tend. There's a danger to lose it spiritually. Because I, I, Years ago, I, I can remember the day I heard this. We're in Georgia visiting Mary's family. It's a rainy day. We're driving out by the airport. Mary's mom had uh, insight for living on the radio. I'll never forget this as long as they live. We were pulling right up by a McDonald's. I'll never forget, Chuck said, Chuck said, he said, many people think when life falls apart that it's their greatest test. When you lose a job, when you lose your health, when you lose a house, that's your greatest test. He said, nothing could be further from the truth. The greatest test you will ever face in your life is prosperity. Because you see, when you've lost it all, you have nowhere else to go except to the Lord. He's all you have. He's all you have to rely on. He's all you have to depend on. 
But when you're prosperous and when you're affluent and when you've got your real estate and when you've got your orchards and when you've got this and when you've got that, that's the most dangerous test of all because other things can subtly get in the way and you don't even realize it. Now, he's going to repeat this a second time. Um, three times he's going to try and nail this with these people. Note verse 9, if you would. He says, For the Lord your God, for the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. Once again, he's speaking of the faithfulness of God. God has driven out strong and great nations from before you, and as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand, for the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. Uh, God had fought for them. God had given them supernatural favor. Israel was a privileged nation. So then immediately he follows up the faithfulness of God with you guys now be faithful to God. Look at verses uh, 11, uh, 12, and then look at verse uh, 13. What does he say here? He says, so take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. I really find that interesting. Um, this guy is passionate. This guy is emotional. Because, you see, this guy realizes the danger that they are in. He, he's not asking for church membership here. He's not asking to walk the aisle and transfer by letter. You know what I'm talking about? He's talking about you shall diligently heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. He's not asking them to be Jews. He's not asking them anything that we associate with religiosity. He's talking about their hearts and loving God with all their heart. That's the issue. It's always the issue. Always has been the issue. Always will be the issue. Down the road a long time to one of the churches, the Lord would say, but I have this against you. You have lost your what? You've lost your first love because it's easy to do. You know, you, you know what? You can love a church because it's a great church. You can love the preaching. You can love the people and your friends and the activities. You can love, you, there's all kinds of things to love about a church like this. See, the question is, do you love him? How about him? I mean, he's, he's going for the juggler here. So take diligent heed to yourselves, the Lord, the Lord love your God. For if you ever go back, now catch this, and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you. But they shall be a snare and a trap to you, and a whip on your sides and thorn in your eyes, until you perish from off this good land, which the Lord your God has given to you. And again, ask yourself the question. Someone who has been blessed by God, someone who has received the goodness of God, um, let's talk about adultery. When you, I've seen someone get into adultery. Anyone else is there? You've got a trail of lying and deceit. 
You know how you get into adultery? You start lying. That's how you get into it. You start lying and compromising your integrity in little, tiny ways. That's how it happens. Um, your conscience, your conscience is a nerve. It's living. What can happen in the Christian life is when we sin and are convicted, when we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, instead of immediately dealing with that and confessing it and acknowledging it, when we resist the Spirit of God and when we ignore it, what happens is we harden our nerve of conscience. A nerve needs to be tender, doesn't it? A nerve needs to be sensitive to do its job. But when we resist the Spirit of God, we put a layer of callousness on our nerve. It's interesting to me that in, uh, in, in uh, uh, is it 1 Timothy? Flip over there real quick. Yeah, we, we got time for this. In 1 Timothy, when Paul talks to uh, young Timothy, in fact, I'm going to 1 Timothy, but stop in 2 Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience. You see that? I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience. Now, go to 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. But the goal of our instruction... Verse 5, but the goal of our instruction, the goal of our preaching, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. See, this is where the little sin will get you. When little sin happens and it isn't confessed and it isn't dealt with, what happens is your conscience, your nerve, which the Holy Spirit impulses, it gets hard, it gets calloused. And what happens is, it can, as, as days turn into weeks and you resist the Spirit of God. Because see, once you resist Him on one small thing, then the next time something comes along, it's going to be easier to resist Him. And so that small sin turns into just a little larger sin. Not real big, but just a little larger. And then, and then a little bit larger, it goes in increments. And then you do that for days, and then you do it for weeks, and you do it for months. And nobody knows what's going on. You're still Joe Christian, right? You're still Joe Stonebriar, or Joe Prestonwood, or Joe whatever the heck you are. You're still doing the thing. You're still carrying the Bible. You're still showing up for the uh, uh, men's breakfast, or whatever you know the stuff is that you do. You're, you're still... Uh, you know, you're doing the church stuff. You're doing the evangelical stuff. You know, your wife doesn't know. Nobody knows. See, only you know your heart. But, but there has been this permission in your life to resist the Spirit of God, and you're on a track, and nobody knows it except you. But you, in your private life, you keep giving permission, and the lesser sin is becoming increasingly greater. And see, you don't realize that you're being lulled into it. And so inevitably, there's lying, there's deceit. And see, this is how guys get into adultery because then they compromise. And once you've compromised here and there, it's no big deal. Compromise with some gal, and then that boom, boom, pow, and you're toast. 
That's how it works. Positive thoughts here tonight. <laughs> but you know what these are? These are precious remedies against Satan's devices. Because if you... I'm going to tell you something. Last night, I, I couldn't sleep, and I got up, and I'm just being honest here with you guys. And you know what? There was someone that... I, I'm ashamed about this. But I'm just going to read for a while. And then I thought about someone that I knew was struggling. I thought, you know, I had to pray for them. And I prayed for them. But I really wanted to finish this book. And I prayed for them. And then you know what I did? I picked up that book and I finished it. And, and I woke up this morning, and the very first thing I thought about was that. About, about what Jesus said to his disciples. Could you, not even, could you not even stay awake? You know, he was out there praying, and then he guys keep falling asleep. I wouldn't fall asleep, I'm reading. You know, when the Spirit of God puts somebody on your heart, pray for them. There's a reason he's doing that. I, I, I'm going to tell you something. I dropped the ball last night. And I've been praying for that person all day today. Throughout the day. But you know what that was? That was sin in my life. That was flat out sin because I was called to go to war and I didn't do it. Now you know what? I better learn from that real quick. Real quick. See, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. And you might, maybe you're thinking, well, that's no big deal. That's the whole point. It is a big deal because it's small. I mean, I don't know what's going on in that person's life, but God put somebody on your heart, you better pray for them. You guys know about that, don't you? Lord put somebody on your heart, you pray for that person until you sense the freedom there. Okay, all right. Where am I? What, what town am I in here? Okay, all right, we got, this is great. We're going to wrap with this. This is phenomenal. We're going to get the third restatement here in verses 14 to 16. I'll just let you, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to read 14 and stop, because you already know what he's going to say in 15 and 16. But 14 is so cotton-picking good, we're, going to, we're just going to pop it right here. Now behold, today I am going, I'm going the way of all the earth. That means he's, he's going to die. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. That's a phenomenal statement. You know what he's talking about there? He's talking about the promises of God. He's talking about the word of God. He's talking to all these leaders collectively. He said, you know what, guys? I'm coming to the end of the trail. Let me tell you something. Not one single word that God has said has he failed to deliver on. Not one word. I'm going to tell you something. You can't beat that. You, you can't beat that. There is no more sure foundation in all of life than that. Uh, 
you know, get a piece of the rock, you know, get your, get your house in order, you know, your 401s, your, your stock portfolio. Let me tell you something. That's life right there. Not one word has God failed to deliver on. Now, if that's true, do you see, do you see the wisdom of adhering to the word of God and not going to the right or to the left? You count on it, you believe it, you cling to him, you take his, you live on the promises. Last week, last week, let me go back to Caleb here for a minute. We looked at Caleb. Caleb lived on the promises of God for 45 years. He waited 45 years for God to deliver a promise. Was it delivered? It was delivered. I, I, you know, guys, it doesn't get any better than that. There, there, there are no guarantees in life except God will deliver on his word. So why would we live any way else? Why would our hope be anywhere else? Why would we peel off and take another exit off the interstate of life? You camp securely on the word of God, and not one word will fail. Not one promise. He... I was going to say, he may not meet your timetable. Let me rephrase that. He will not meet your timetable. But he will deliver. He will deliver, as he delivered for Caleb, as he delivered for Joshua, and as he delivered for these people, as he delivered for Moses. So, you know what I'd say? Let's go out there this week. Let's live on his word. Let's live on the promises of God. And you know what? Those small sins, let's kill them. Let's kill them. Let's shoot them before they shoot us. That's what you call practical Christianity. Would you agree with that? Does that make sense? Is that something you can get your arms around? I think so. So that's our assignment. And you know what? It's an assignment until you go the way of all the earth. We'll just keep working on that one. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for the legacy of this man, Joshua, and thank you for his buddy, Caleb. They were different guys with different personalities, with different gifts, with different skills. Um, Joshua was a lot more upfront than Caleb, but in, but in the crunch, Caleb stepped up. Uh, we thank you for these men and for their lives and that their uh, biographies were recorded in the scripture. And Lord, we, uh, we want to hear Joshua tonight. We want to hear it loud and clear. We want to hear it three times. You have been faithful to us. Now may we be faithful to you out of gratitude uh, because we love you. And Lord, may we take stock tonight. May we take heed to ourselves. May we check ourselves out. There's been a lot of discussion this week, Lord, about uh, people getting in to get their cars checked and hooking them up to a diagnostic machine. Before we walk out of here, we need to hook our hearts up to this diagnostic machine. And we need to read some meters and see how our hearts are doing. 
in terms of loving you and clinging to you and not holding on to anything else. Everything else, Lord, give us the wisdom to hold on to very, very loosely. But your word will never fail. Not one word, not one jot, not one tittle. That makes us very secure. And it gives us tremendous hope to live on your promises. We are privileged to pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Guys, we'll see you next week for the wrap-up. Yeah, Phil's got some bookmarks. He's gonna, yeah, go, just real quick, Phil's going to give you a shot here. This was given to me about a year ago by a friend of mine, and I, I may want to preach to you guys if you want to do this. I'm not going to be here next week. I'll be in California. But this is from uh, Neil Anderson's book, Living uh, Free in Christ, but it says, Who am I? Some of you guys may have seen this in other forms. But it says, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I am accepted, I am secure, and I am significant. And these are Bible references. And guys, I tell you what, I carry this around me at work. I share this with customers. Uh, I read this during the day because it keeps me focused. Uh, has, I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. Uh, Second Timothy, I have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And keep this, you know, I keep it in my Bible. Like, I, I have paper ones of these. I hand out, but I made these for you guys are harder, they're cardboard, more better paper. So I have a preach one of y'all, and I have some of them, so I'll hand them out to you as you leave. Okay? So, Good. Thanks, Phil. Appreciate it. All right, guys, have a great week. Take care of yourselves.